So since last week, we haven't perished. We've changed. Every single part of us has changed. But the continuity of our life has continued. The continuity of the body, mind, and person have continued. Although they are not the same body, mind, and person, as we're here last week. So the body, mind, and the person designated in dependence on them will continue to change in this momentary fashion, never remaining the same in the next moment until at some time there will be a very coarse change of death where the body and mind separate. And then the conditioned existence of the next life. And that's not what we want around us when we're dying and going into the next life. But situations are, you know, we can't control everything, so we may have our death all planned out, and that's what may happen in the middle of it. And what are we going to do? Say, turn off that radio, or change the music to a different channel? No, we're just going to have to deal with it right then and there without letting the mind get distracted without getting angry without complaining this isn't the way my death was supposed to be so in order to be able to remain steady and balanced that way at the time of death, then we have to practice with different circumstances that happen now while we're alive and get used to simply accepting what is without complaint, without rebellion, without depression, and then continuing to do what is important instead of getting distracted by what is not important. And so what is important is keeping our heart open towards all other living beings and dedicating our life to attaining full awakening for their benefit. So we need to remind ourselves of this again and again and again, making this such a strong habit in our mind that it will be easy at the time of death to maintain our bodhicitta through the intermediate stage into the next life. So that depends on 
practicing it diligently now without distraction. And so let's generate that bodhicitta mind and keep it at least as our latent motivation as we are listening to the teachings this evening. Okay, let's um, recite the 21st prayer from Nagarjuna before we continue the explanation of it. Honoring in all ways the Buddhas, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and also Bodhisattvas. In them I take refuge and pay homage to those worthy of homage. I turn away from all negativity and embrace all kinds of merit. I rejoice in all the merit amassed by all sentient beings. With bowed heads and palms together, I beseech all perfect Buddhas to turn the wheel of Dharma and remain as long as beings remain. Through the merit of doing this and the merit I have done and will do, may all sentient beings be endowed with unsurpassed bodhicitta. May all sentient beings have immaculate faculties and transcend the unfree states. May they control their own actions and live by right living. May all embodied beings have jewels in their hands, and may a limitless amount of all kinds of necessities remain inexhaustible for as long as cyclic existence endures. At all times, may all women become supreme persons. May all beings be endowed with intelligence and legs. May all beings have a good complexion and also a good physique. May they be radiant and pleasant to behold. Free of illness, may they be strong and live long. May they all gain expertise and skillful means and become free of all dukkha. May they become devoted to the three jewels and have the great treasure of the Dharma. May they become adorned with love, compassion, joy, equanimity in the face of hardship, generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, meditative stability, and wisdom. Thus adorned, may they complete all collections and obtain brilliant signs and marks. May they traverse without hindrance the ten grounds to the inconceivable. May I also become adorned with all these good qualities and all others as well. May I become free of all faults and may I spring of all beings. May I perfect the virtues to which all beings aspire. And may I always dispel the dukkha of all embodied beings. In all worlds, may all beings who are feeling anxious due to danger become completely fearless merely by hearing my name, from seeing and thinking of me and from merely hearing my name. May beings become clear-minded, undisturbed, and at ease. May it be definite that they will awaken, and in all their future lives may they gain the five super-knowledges. In all ways, may I always do what brings benefit and happiness to all livings. May I always dissuade all at once all those beings of any world engage in negativity and not doing them any harm. I like the earth, water, wind, fire, the ancestral herds, and the trees in the wilderness. May I always freely be an object of enjoyment by all beings as they wish. 
May I be beloved of beings, and may they be more beloved to me than myself. May I bear the results of their negativity, and may they have the results of all my virtue. As long as there is even one sentient being somewhere who is not yet free, may I remain in the world for that being's sake, even if I attain false awakening. If the merit of making such things were to be material, it would not fit into the world, so the sound of the Ganges. This is what the Blessed One said, and the reason is here to be seen. The worlds of beings are immeasurable, and the intention to aid them is likewise. It really does something to your mind, huh? Yeah? I mean, you recite those kind of verses, and if you at least try and focus on the meaning of them, then your mind can't stay in the same state as it was in before. Yeah? When we don't focus on the meaning, then we can stay in the same state. Yeah? Which we often do. Yeah? But, uh, you know, if we just try a little bit to think of what these verses mean, it really takes our mind in a very different place. Hmm? Because you can't sit there and think about your own problems in the middle of these verses, can you? Yeah. I mean, it would be very interesting to rewrite these verses according to the self-centered thought. You know? Like the earth, water, wind, and fire, medicinal herbs, and the trees in the wilderness. May everybody ignore me and take advantage of me as they wish. That's why self-centeredness would say. May I be beloved all of all beings because I'm so wonderful. And even though they don't love me and appreciate me, may I somehow endure their ingratitude, these idiots. <laughs> may they bear the results of my negativity. And may I have the results of all their virtue. Yeah? This is how self-centered mind thinks, isn't it? Yeah. Should we try another one? May it be definite that they don't awaken, and in their future lives, may they not attain anything because I want to be better than them. And in all ways, may they always do what brings me happiness and harms my enemies. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry, I read that wrong. May they always do what I tell them to do. Yeah. May they pamper me when I feel depressed. May they praise me when I'm ignored. Yeah. May they rescue me when I got myself into a big mess. And may they never see any of my mistakes because I don't make any. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? So, you know, you can tell very clearly that our mood depends on what we think about. Yeah? Depends very much on what we think about. And so if we think about things according to the self-centered attitude, we're in a crummy mood. Yeah? And then 
but we don't understand why we're in a crummy mood. And we think we're in a crummy mood because of other living beings. And it's not due to other living beings. It's due to what we're thinking. Okay. So you change your thoughts and then your mood's going to change. Of course, many of us like being depressed because it's so familiar. You know, it's so comforting. You're very familiar with depression. It works better? Yeah, what does it work better for? Oh, so when you're depressed and you try and involve yourself with things and you can't stop thinking your depressed thoughts, so you get smacked around. Yeah. Oh no, they're really smacking me around. After all I did for them. I mean, 20 years I was somebody's mama, and now look what they do to me. Like they guilt trip me. No, it's not like. It's not the way life should be. I didn't have a baby to go through that. No. <laughs> anyway, you know, I'm a totally crummy nun and I'm a totally crummy mama. I can't do anything right. See, I told you I can't even do anything right. Can't even preserve the mic with the microphone. By exchanging myself with others, may I happily experience the results of their negative actions, and may they experience the results of all my virtue. The aspiration, may I bear the results of their negativity and may they, uh, the results of all my virtue is the heart of the practice of equalizing, exchanging self and others. So I wish they would do that for me. Take my pain and give me their virtue. Leave me alone. But I don't want them to desert me. I always want them to stay with me. Because I only feel worthwhile if somebody needs me. So get out of here, but don't leave me. It's, con it's totally consistent, isn't it? <laughs> but you can't leave. Okay. I don't. Nobody appreciates me. <laughs> okay. So, um, these next verses here, in these next verses, uh, Nagarjuna is telling me 
exactly what to do about my problem. Yeah. Now, of course, I come to teachings and I listen and I say, what beautiful teachings Nagarjuna is telling. Stunning. I'll practice them someday. Yeah. Right now, I'm too busy crying to practice. Okay, so verse 484 is about the taking and giving meditation. Okay, so 483, the previous verse, was uh, encouraging us how to um, give others whatever they need to become whatever others need. And 484 is encouraging us to consider others more important than ourselves. Okay? Now, here's where we often get screwed up, is when we think others are more important than me, therefore, I should do everything they want. Whether what they want is good or bad, whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense, whether it, is, whether it helps them or doesn't, whether it helps me or doesn't, I should not have any ideas or make any decisions on my own. I should just strive to become what other people, what I think other people think I should be and throw away my wisdom. And that is altruism. Wrong. Okay. Very wrong. So, you know, cherishing others more than self doesn't mean we necessarily do everything they want because sometimes that what they want is crazy. Yeah? If you don't believe that, Read the newspaper this week. <laughs> yeah? If you don't think that what sentient beings want is often crazy, and what sentient beings say is totally off the wall, just read the paper last week and this week. Yeah? And it's a very good Lam Rim teaching about why we need to learn how to think clearly. Yeah. And how if we can't think clearly, and if we can't stop thinking about ourselves and our own problems, there's no way to help others. And in fact, we're only going to dig ourselves deeper and deeper into a hole. Witness Uncle Donnie who's really getting himself into a big mess. Yeah, so we need to, yeah, get rid of this self-centered attitude. It's a a very good study, you know. If you look at what he's doing, can you find that place in yourself? Yeah, yeah that's completely 
on def- I mean how defensive he is and how he needs to you know justify everything he does and prove it to others and defend himself and by doing so he's actually losing credibility yeah so this is exactly like us isn't it you know somebody does something we don't like we get resentful we get defensive we say all sorts of things to protect ourselves and those things basically are like red flags <laughs> that let other people believe that something else is going on other than what we're saying yeah so it's a very sad case of people wanting to be happy and quite enthusiastically creating the cause of suffering not only for themselves personally but how many people in this country how many people in this world yeah and we are no different we can't point a finger and say oh, look what he does we do the same thing don't we when we get defensive boy yeah when we feel attacked so it's very good you know when we see these kinds of things then to step back and go okay when in my life have i acted like that you know what kind of situations make me tempted to act like that and what do i need to do with my mind so i don't get caught up in the self-centered attitude that makes me act in that way that harms myself and harms others it's incredible isn't it yeah I and mean, we don't need to watch tv the washington is a melodrama or or a comic uh comedy show kind of a cross between the two isn't it yeah <laughs> dramedy no reality tv is that's exactly it yeah it's reality tv but it's playing with with the lives of billions of people which is what is sad okay so if we can take our attention away from ourselves for a moment i know that's asking a lot but we can try and we try and place it on others <laughs> then nagarjuna tells us that when we say the line may i bear the results of their negativity oy vey does he really want me to do that okay that when we say that line the first time we say it we think all the various forms of suffering included in the truth of dukkha such as the three types of dukkha 
the eight kinds of suffering, and the six disadvantages of cyclic existence. All of these leave sentient beings through their right nostril. Kind of like venerable children when she was blowing her nose with her cold. <laughs> Horrible, icky, gooey pollution. What do you think? All their suffering comes out as like nectar? <laughs> now it comes out as snot. <laughs> Doesn't it? What do you think? Yeah, they don't want to inhale nectar. Crazy. Okay, so it comes out in the form of pollution through their right nostril. And we, inha we inhale it through our left nostril. <laughs> like that. <laughs> you got it? Okay, their suffering then dissolves into the lump of self-centeredness at your heart, causing it to vanish. So there's not. Ah, <laughs> uh, come on, Chudrick, hold it together. <laughs> okay. So their junk leaves them through the right nostril. We inherit it. <laughs> through our left nostril. I haven't illustrated it leaving through. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. So it comes in through our left nostril. I won't show you how again. <laughs> and it goes into the self-centeredness of our heart. Okay? And it vanishes. The self-centeredness vanishes. Bang! You know, just like you always wished it would. Goes. Okay. Then the second time you say that line. Remember the line, may I bear the results of their negativity? Then you imagine taking all the causes that give rise to this dukkha, the root afflictions, auxiliary afflictions, and actions motivated by these th disturbing states of mind, the ten paths of non-virtue, the five heinous crimes, yeah, and so forth. Inhaling the source of all other sentient beings' dukkha. Because it left their, their right nostril, you know. And then you inhale it, you're left. And, and then that, again, dissolves into the self-centeredness at your heart and dismantles it. Now, don't ask me how the self-centeredness got there between the first time you inhaled and the second time you inhaled. Because I don't know the answer to that. Ask Sean Spicer. He can tell you. You know who Sean Spicer is? 
He's out in the bushes there. <laughs> Looking for a job. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So you got it. So you uh, inhale the second time. Yeah, the causes of all the dukkha. So there you think of all the afflictions, all the karma, you know, that's created by that. Yeah, and it, again, annihilates your self-centeredness. Then the third time, yeah, you imagine that they're cognitive obscurations, you know, the, uh, the subtle dualistic view, the latencies of the afflictions, the defilement that keeps us from seeing the two truths simultaneously. Yeah, all those subtle things that sound with, have really big words, but we don't understand what they mean. Then they all leave through um, sentient beings' right nostril again. So their right nostrils getting a lot of workout. Okay, and then we inhale it again through our left nostril. I won't show you how. And that again comes into our heart and destroys the self-centeredness. And then we focus on being completely free of self-centeredness. The second part of the verse, may they have the results of all my virtue. So that's the practice of giving. So now this time we exhale through our right nostril and we imagine that other living beings inhale it through their left. So what we exhale is first we imagine here that our body is a wish-fulfilling jewel. So we can imagine that our body is a wish-fulfilling jewel. Don't ask me how, how a jewel exhales white light. I don't know the answer to that. You have to ask spicy. But, or you can imagine that you exhale the white light and that wish-fulfilling jewels are come in front of every living being and from those jewels manifest uh, whatever they, they need, okay? So you, inhale, you exhale the white light, yeah, from your right nostril, and it goes into other sentient beings' left nostril, okay? And so at that point, you think that you are pacifying the suffering. Uh, you're giving... Your body, which is a wish-fulfilling jewel, is becoming whatever other living beings need to pacify their suffering. So for the beings in the cold hell, it becomes um, toasty blankets and heaters and um, lights and hot tea and whatever else they need, hot chocolate maybe, Milo. Yeah, Milo, yeah, for sure. Milo and the cold hells. And then for the hot hells, you send them aircon, you send them water. But I think you can also think of these things, the hot and cold hells, as psychological states in the sense that what happens when our body is when our body is cold and our mind is cold, we withdraw, don't we? So we have a mind that's completely shut down, turned into itself, depressed, can't move. So you can think of it that way, 
because these beings are probably physically cold and emotionally frozen. Yeah. And so we want to solve not only their physical cold, but their emotional frozenness. So maybe we need, our body needs to manifest as friends, as companions, as, you know, NVC partners, as giraffe ears, as, you know, Buddhas there, whoever they need that they can communicate with that will draw them out of that mind that's completely turned in and shut down. And then for the hot hells, you know, hot hells, hot mind, yeah, the mind is irritable, anxious, screaming, yeah. So again, we send them not only physical chilling effect, yeah, but we we send them something that will help them calm down also, you know. Maybe Shantideva's sixth chapter, maybe a teacher that that can really communicate well with them. Yeah, whatever it is they need to be able to calm themselves. Yeah, hungry ghosts, we send food and nourishment. Yeah, we also may need to send them mental food and drink, mental nourishment. Yeah, animals, we, we protect them from being killed and eaten and exploited for labor. And we also send them intelligence so that they can operate much better in life and, you know, take care of themselves. Human beings, they have endless needs. You can manifest whatever they want. They're always going to want more and better. Okay, but you imagine that you send them things that will really satisfy them. Yeah? So whatever somebody might need, and really thinking that they accept it and they're satisfied. So you might even imagine, you know, either somebody you find difficult or even yourself out there and give them what they need and really imagine those people who are difficult being content and satisfied or imagining yourself being content and satisfied. Okay, the devas, then, you know, luxury deluxe, except the week before they die, and then it's worse than hell. So being able to send them very good palliative care, yeah, which is going to be different than human palliative care, but they need it. Okay, so the first time we imagine giving our body, exhaling the white light through our right nostril. It goes in their left nostril. The second time, exhaling the white light, and we think that our possessions become wish-fulfilling possessions and become whatever, whatever other people need. It's always, I've always thought, you know, in, in these descriptions of Tonglen, they usually emphasize so much material objects, giving material objects. You give your body and it becomes what they need. You give your possessions, it becomes what others need. But I think very often what, what other people need is not material possessions, but 
people in their life that can help them. Yeah? And that without giving, you may give medicine, but without giving doctors, yeah, the medicine may not work. So I think when we're emanating our body or our possessions, we have to also think of transforming ourselves into the people that other living beings need. You know, all the kids and adults who need teachers. It's not just a question of sending them books, but becoming teachers for them, becoming doctors and sending medicine. Yeah? Becoming engineers and plumbers and whatever else sentient beings need, not just sending them the toilet fixtures. Okay? So, um, yeah, because... If you look at it, I I think a lot of times it's not just material. You know, what people need is some kind of human connection where they feel that others are taking care of them. Or not necessarily taking care of them, but others care about them. Okay, and then the third time you do it, then you imagine that you're giving your roots of virtue. Exhaling through your right nostril, goes in their left nostril, and that um, this overcomes all of their afflictive obscurations and their cognitive obscurations, so that they, you know, you imagine all sentient beings progressing through the five Mahayana paths, through the ten Bodhisattva Bhumis, and becoming fully awakened beings. Okay? Alternatively, yeah, when you give your body, imagine sentient beings receive an excellent body, a precious human life. Okay? So here, instead of your body becoming what they need, you're giving them a precious human body. Yeah. It would I wonder about imagining that you all give them a uh, a pure land body. Yeah, I've never heard that, but I wonder if you could put that in. It would seem like you could. Then um you know giving them possessions, you give them all the things that they need to practice the dharma whether it's books or teachers or chalkboards or whatever it is they need. Yeah, tables, computers. Yeah. And then um, and then the third time, again, you give your roots of virtue and you think that they all gain realizations and their minds are transformed. Okay. Now, if we do this meditation with even a tiny bit of concentration, is there any way that our mind can remain depressed and weepy and full of self-pity? It's impossible, isn't it? impossible. If we really do this with any bit of concentration, then our mind's going to be transformed. Okay? So Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna is telling us what to do. 
Yeah. So he's telling you what to do. Write it down and remember it and do it. Yeah? Because otherwise, when you hit a problem, then you come running to me and say, what do I do? And I say, go read Nagarjuna. And you say, it's too much trouble. There's 500 verses. Just tell me the answer. And what do I say then? So I'll tell you, and you can send them the video. Okay. So the, the methods we need to work with our minds are right there, you know. And we've heard them many times. Our difficulty is that we don't remember them when we need them. Yeah. Or we remember them, but we don't practice them. And instead... We think nobody understands us. Okay. So you can see we have a choice in here, don't we? Yeah. Okay. So the point of this meditation is to train our mind in love and compassion. Yeah. That's the point of the meditation. We can't actually take on other people's negativities. We try and give them our negativities all the time and they can't take them. I mean, we keep waiting for our our spiritual teachers to take on our negativities, don't we? I mean, they're supposed to have realizations. Can't they just take all my negative karma and, you know, put it down the garbage disposal? But, so we keep trying and giving away our negativities, but Nobody else can experience them for us. So likewise, we can't experience others' negativities for them. But the purpose of the meditation is to increase our, our uh, compassion to the point where we want to be able to do that, where we feel strong enough mentally, you know, that yes, I can handle, you know, other people's, you know, whatever it is that's going on with them, whether it's a physical illness or mental unhappiness or, you know, who knows what. Okay? So the meditation acts as familiarizing ourselves with all of this, gets us trained. When we become high-level bodhisattvas, then we will be able to give away our body without any hesitation and give away our possessions without any hesitation. And that's good because we'll be able to benefit a lot more beings that way. Yeah, so it is practice in in that sense. Yeah, for something that we will be able to do one day. Okay, but right now we do it in our imagination. I have a question about doing this uh-huh. um, meditation. And if you really want to take on their negativity, but you can't. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is, I'm, I get upset, or my, poor me, is that I can't do that. Mm. Does that make sense? I'm, this is something I've been struggling with. Um, trying to 
be okay seeing that other person struggle yeah. and wanting to help. And I can't help, help them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where I'm going, oh, poor me. I'm, you know, I'm, I really want to. I really want to. I want, want to, to help. I they can't. need help. I can give Does help. That make sense? But they won't accept my help. And so I feel sometimes we interpret people's not accepting our, our help as rejection. Sometimes, well, it's yeah. Well, I want to control. Why aren't you doing what should what I think is right for you? You know, yeah. Can't you see that this? Oh, is Oh, you the mean right? so we can't control them? <laughs> yes. Do, is it that we really want to help, or we really want to control? Mm-hmm. That's that's. What's the difference between help and control? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So. Yeah? Are we saying we really want to help or are we saying we really want to control and we're frustrated because we can't control? Yeah? Yeah. And that's it. Here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's more generous than I am. She gives you a big towel. Okay, so, yeah, you have to see. Is it because sometimes we confuse help with control and then we get very frustrated? Yeah. In the same way, sometimes we say, I want somebody to help me. But what we don't really want is help. We want somebody to rescue us. Yeah. I don't really want somebody to help me because if they help me, I might have to do something and change. I would much rather that they rescue me. Yeah. Because I'm a victim. Yeah, so this, it's, these are sticky issues. We really have to always check the mind. Always check the mind. What's going on? Hmm? I've been thinking about um, what you mentioned, I think it was last week, about if the thought of taking on the suffering doesn't make you squirm and get uncomfortable, then it's not hitting the right spot. Um, and watching myself when I do the meditation... Uh, I kind of, it came up when you told the story of how the Russian lady who wasn't killed when she was lying um, mm-hmm. on top of all the bodies in, in, in the museum, um, and I was thinking of just, oh, just imagining it was like taking that suffering away, and part of my mind went, it's, it's possible because the suffering isn't solid, it, it, it's empty, so that's, it's not, I can take it and it's not going to hurt me because it's... And I was like, hmm, is that kind of not really doing it properly? No, like I said last week, every time you do this, you don't have to squirm. Yeah, every time you do it, you're going to have a different experience. So don't feel like every time you do it, you've got to feel like, no, I don't want to take this. Yeah, but if you're really truly seeing their suffering is empty, 
then you should also see your own suffering as empty and stop complaining. That's hard, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, it's easy. Others suffering. It's just this nebulous feeling. You know, what is it that I can really take on? It doesn't have color. It doesn't shape. But my suffering is very real. Okay. Always more about to learn about the mind and to dig out. You know? Isn't there? So 485, as long as there is even one sentient being somewhere who is not yet free, may I remain in the world for that being's sake, even if I have attained peerless awakening. Okay? Now again, that one is challenging to the self-centered thought, isn't it? It's like, wait a minute, if I attain peerless awakening, why should I stay in samsara to help one sentient being who I've been trying to help since beginningless time and who never listens to me anyway? Maybe you can help me to understand the self-centeredness behind this. Every time I read this, I said, why do they have problem with that? Because when I'm a Buddha, there's no suffering, there's nothing. Then I wouldn't have any hesitance. Yeah, exactly. If you're a Buddha, this would not be a problem for you. But here... It's talking to us as bodhisattva candidates. (laughs) Yeah, that we are, we aren't yet Buddhas, and there's some selfish part of us, you know, that thinks, like His Holiness says, I'll intake enlightenment and then I can have a good sleep. Yeah, then I can finally rest. So it's addressing that part of us. That is kind of saying, you know, that it's, it's still hanging on to our own benefit. Okay, Because you're absolutely right. If we were fully awakened beings, this would not be a problem for us at all. But when we think of it now as unenlightened beings, then it becomes a problem for us. Yeah. Okay, and do you see how it became a problem, you know? Like, oh, finally I'm happy, and then here's this jerk I've been, having, I've been trying to help since beginning this time, who is again asking me to rec- you know, rescue them from their problem when I've been working for their benefit all this time and they haven't listened to my advice? Come on. Why should I hang out in samsara? And not have this, you know, body of light and my pure blissful nectar for the sake of this idiot. Yeah, Because that's how we very often think, isn't it? When we're frustrated with somebody that we've been trying to help. Don't we? Don't you just get sick and tired of it? And it's like, I'm done, you know? I've been trying to help you for so long. You don't listen. Forget it. Yeah. 
So again, I'm not saying here that the skillful thing to do is to keep trying to rescue somebody. Sometimes the skillful thing to do is you have to let someone crash because that's the only way they themselves will decide to change. But what this verse is talking about is our mind that gets fed up and just says, you know, I've had it. Yeah, which is a mind thinking about ourselves, isn't it? Ourselves foremost. Okay, so it's really, this verse is really trying to help us make a very solid commitment to benefit sentient beings. And it's important to contemplate this kind of verse now so that when we first generate bodhicitta and enter the Mahayana path of accumulation, when our bodhicitta is still unstable and when it, we could still lose it, if we've meditated on this verse and we've made a very strong commitment to hang in there with sentient beings and not abandon them, not get fed up and abandon them, then that will make our bodhisattva, our bodhicitta very strong on the small, the initial part of the, or the small part of the path of accumulation. Whereas if we don't think about this now, we could attain the small part, the small part of the path of accumulation and then get angry at somebody and then throw the whole thing away. Yeah. That's what they say happened to Shariputra. Yeah. I think, what was it? Somebody, maybe somebody asked for his eye? Huh? His hand? His eye? Something. And Shariputra just, you know, he couldn't do it. It was too much to ask for him and... Okay. Okay. So um, that is the four eighty five is the last of the twenty verses. It's kind of like the the you can see the the last two or the last three verses are really summing up the the twenty into very strong bodhicitta. And uh, so now we go on in. Uh, Verse 486, if the merit of making such statements were to be material, it would not fit into worlds as numerous as the grains of sand of the Ganges. Okay, so Nagarjuna has recommended that we say this, these, uh, the 20, you know, three times a day if possible, otherwise twice, otherwise once. Otherwise, whenever we get around to it, but the more, of course, we get around to it, the more we're going to benefit. How is it going to benefit us? Because if that benefit were to be made material, it would not fit into worlds as numerous as grains of sand in the Ganges. So in ancient India, the Ganga, the river Ganga, was the great river uh, it's sand underneath the bottom on, this, on both banks. You know, it was more sand than you could ever think of 
and uh, to think of that many worlds and universes and then all of them full of that much virtue if you could make virtue into material. So it's, it's trying to get us to think in a really big, vast way, saying that reciting this is, is really very, very virtuous. And then um, 486, this is what the Blessed One said, and the reason is here to be seen. The worlds of beings are immeasurable, and the intention to aid them as well. Okay, so if we may think, "Wow, the uni- you know universe is as big as as many as the grains of sand of the Ganges," um, you know, if all that virtue is like that, that's immeasurable kind of virtue. Yeah, and that's uh, exactly the idea that. They're trying to get a cost to us, yeah? So that the worlds of beings are immeasurable, the number of sentient beings are immeasurable, and we need to have the intention to benefit them that is also immeasurable for an immeasurable length of time. Yeah, so no matter how long it takes, no matter what we have to go through, to be able to have that strong, steady mind. Now, the only way to gain a strong, steady mind on big things like this is to train our mind on being steady and stable first with small things. Okay? So as with everything, you know, you, you can't do the high jump before you can step over the, the, you know, the threshold of the door. Okay? You have to be able to do the little ones, and then that way you build yourself up to the big ones. Yeah, that's the only way to do it. So, you know, what, what I try to think sometimes when somebody does something that just really makes me feel like, um, to say, this is my bodhisattva in training time. Yeah. I can't just sit there and say prayers all the time that, you know, may I go to the hell realm for the sake of even one sentient being or this last one, you know, as long as there is even one sentient being somewhere who's not yet free, may I remain in the world for that being's sake, even if I have attained peerless awakening. You know, I can't think to even feel that if... I can't, you know, kind of make make my way through the situation in front of me right now. And so I find it very helpful to say to myself, you know, this is my training period, and this is what I've got to do, and it's uncomfortable, and I'm unhappy, and I sure wish everybody else around me would change. But as a bodhisattva, I can't sit there and wish everybody around me is going to change. I have to be able to have a strong, steady mind and do something. And so to develop that mind, I need to practice with this situation right now. Which reminds me of of something that I I thought I should probably tell you, since many of you are going out and, you know, giving Dharma talks and teachings in other places. Um, When I was in Russia at the retreat, we uh, were, had gathered in the afternoon 
And I had come in, made prostrations, sat down. Everybody else was in the process of making prostrations. And then there was some like, (gasps) and disturbance. And I thought somebody had just tripped over a cushion or something. Actually, someone had had a seizure. There was a young man who had had a seizure. And so, um, you know, his mother was there, and uh, she immediately went. And then uh, Denis, who you've been writing to, he was like right on it, right there, and went to help the young man. And I came over, and it, it was interesting because... I think because I was in the role of being a teacher, I had to take charge of that situation. You know, there was it wasn't there wasn't somebody who said I'm a doctor and do this and this. And I said, okay, we need to put something in his mouth so he doesn't swallow his tongue. They had already put cushions around him so he didn't knock his head against anything. Yeah. Um, and then I, I said, you know, you have to call emergency. Everybody was standing there. They were frozen. And I said, you know, you have to get something in his mouth. Then you have to call, you know, call emergency services. Go to the office of the retreat center and call emergency. We need to get somebody out here. And then, you know, and so it was very interesting, you know, that, I mean, I immediately, because people turned to me, had to to take charge of the situation, yeah so yeah, so what I'm, the reason I'm telling you that is that you know you're in situations sometimes that you don't anticipate where all of a sudden you have to snap to and be the person who who helps, yeah um, that situation reminded me of uh, one time when I was with my parents in Hong Kong, and uh, we were in a shopping mall, that's what there is in Hong Kong, and somebody had a seizure. There was one woman, she was alone, she had a seizure in the shopping mall. You know, people rushed, I went to get there too. They knew to call emergency services, you know. Um, But I went, uh, you know, with her to the hospital, because she was alone there, so I went with her to the hospital, make, made sure she had ID, they could contact her next of kin or whoever there was, and made sure she was okay. You know, that's not how I had planned on spending the day. And I was with my parents. I just took off. I said, okay, Mom and Dad, I'll see you back at the hotel. That's it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's there's sometimes those situations where, yeah, you just, yeah. So often, what I'm what I'm saying is it's not emergency. So we we have a little bit of space to say, oh, but why do I have to do it? Can't somebody else? But in those situations, then even we don't know much. I mean, all I remembered was from sixth grade that you got to put something in their mouth. Can you put a pen? I used to say to try and put something in the mouth. Yeah. Not so much that we swallowed their tongue, but they would uh, bite it off with their teeth. Mm-hmm. But um, so many people tried to cram stuff in people's mouths that uh, they broke their teeth and it didn't work very well. And especially if they're 
you know, jaw was going. So now they say, just turn them on their side and cushion them so that they don't hurt themselves from the tonic-clonic, you know, movement. And that works fine. Okay, good. Thank you for the update. But so I stayed there with him. Every, you know, I got everybody chanting Omani Pemi Hung. It was our first session of the meditation retreat. Yeah? We hadn't even started the session. Everybody was just sitting down. So I said, okay, you know, Omani Pemi Hung. So Venerable Tempest started that. And then I sat there and, you know, I was kind of imagining being Chenrezig and light going into him and putting my hands on him. And then when he came to, you know, we had a lot of eye contact. And he told me later that that was so comforting to him when he came to that, that to have me there looking at him. Yeah. But, yeah, he had, he, you know, when we had that eye contact, he was, he, he was, he couldn't smile, but he was, you know, grinning kind of. Yeah. I had a similar experience a number of years ago when Tenzin Palmo came to Seattle and taught the Six Perfections at Bastyr. It was after lunch. I'm not quite sure, but every once in a while I just kind of pass out. I lost consciousness. I, my glasses broke. I fell into the table and I opened my eyes and Tenzin Palmo was right there. Mm-hmm. And she walked me over. There's a chapel at Bastyr. She sat me down. She had me put my head between my legs, got some water. She didn't leave me until she was certain that I was okay. Mm-hmm. But she was off of her teaching table by my side, like right there. Yep. Yep. Okay. So the previous point I was trying to make is whenever things come up, to see them as training so that we develop the capacity of a bodhisattva. So that, you know, because as we train ourselves with small things, then these kinds of things become much, much easier. Okay. Now, seems like we're, all, we're almost done, but you know, there's still... <laughs> yeah... There's still a lot in here, yeah? So now we're in the section called Closing Words of Advice. Yeah, so Nagarjuna has taught us so much already, hasn't he? You know, how to attain a, a higher rebirth, how to attain highest the highest good, you know, the causes of the Buddha's 32 marks. We've gone through a whole thing about how to govern a kingdom and appoint ministers and treat prisoners and how to be generous with the public and build infrastructure and highways and put rest stops on them. Remember? The huge section. How to make parks and lakes, you know, and uh, na- yeah, national parks. Yeah, how to make more national parks for people. And preserve the environment so that families can go out and relax. I mean, in the garden, this text is remarkable. It just sets out a whole plan for government. Maybe I should send it to Washington. <laughs> in person. Yeah. <laughs> no, maybe His Holiness could teach that in Congress. 
Yeah? Look, you guys, this is what Nagarjuna says, how to govern the country. If you do this well, you will definitely get reelected. For sure you'll get reelected. Doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat. Yeah, if you follow this advice, your people will love you. Makes you wonder how we got so screwed up. <laughs> anyway, so in this concluding section, uh, Nagarjuna talks about four practices that he would like us to do. Then he wants. Then he talks. Interesting here, on relying on a qualified spiritual mentor at the end of the text, not at the beginning of the text, like the Lam Rim, which especially is designed for people who are going into Tantra. But here at the end of the text, when you've seen the, the richness of the Dharma that he's taught, then he says, you need to rely on a wise person who can teach this to you. And then he also uh, goes in another section to be mindful in order to conduct ourselves in a way um, that is appropriate for all situations. Okay, so verse uh, 488, this is starting the section on these four practices. Okay. So he says, thus concludes my brief explanation of the Dharma to you. Always consider this dharma to be beloved to you, just as you are beloved to yourself. Yeah. And 489, those who consider the dharma to be beloved are truly holding themselves as beloved. For if one wants to benefit those who one loves, one can do this by means of the dharma. Okay. So, always, he's saying, I this is the end of my explanation. Actually, it's not, but we're getting there. So, but he's saying, just as this Dharma is beloved to you, make the Dharma as beloved to yourself as you are to yourself. You know, because who do we cherish more than anybody else? Ourself. We think if we die, it's this huge tragedy for the whole world. Yeah, it's the worst thing that could possibly happen is if we die. That's actually quite self-centered. If we have the big picture, you know, surprisingly, I know this is shocking, but the world will go on after we die, you know? And our friends and relatives will... They'll continue to live. It's not that they're all going to have heart attacks when we die. Isn't that shocking? Yeah, imagine that. But what is more important than our death is if the Dharma declines. Yeah, if we die out of one out of seven billion, you know, it's not going to be a big fuss. If the Dharma dies, this is going to be really difficult for all sentient beings. So when, when he says, consider this Dharma as beloved to you as you are to yourself, you know, even more 
beloved to our to us than we are to ourselves because the existence of the dharma in the world is of importance to every single living being and not just the living be- the people human beings who are alive now but also animals and insects and also not just now so many future generations yeah so many future generations and you know people get scared of nuclear war even there's nuclear war if there's one or two sentient beings that remain and they have the dharma the dharma can still exist and it can be passed down to new generations of practitioners so it's very important that we cherish the dharma and take care of the dharma and make sure that it survives so of course that means it's physical survival making sure that there's books and libraries and temples and so on but the real way to make the dharma survive is having the dharma in our mind yeah having the books and the scriptures that's having that transmitted dharma yeah but we need the existence of the realized dharma in the world and so if we want that dharma the existence of the realized dharma to be in the world then we need to start realizing it instead of saying well it's only the high rimpaches that do that and i'm too inferior and they they were born with realizations they were born very intelligent they get a special education they can do it i can't you know we can't have that attitude that attitude just doesn't work okay so we have to cherish the teachings and the practices put them to in effort in in our own mind yeah and if we uh don't cherish and practice the buddha's teachings then having a precious human life has no sense and having a long life has no purpose yeah why do we do white tara practice and medicine buddha practice and things like that it isn't just because we don't want to die and we want to live for a long time yeah everybody wants to live for a long time yeah but we do that so that we'll have the opportunity to practice the dharma for a long time to purify to accumulate merit yeah to plant the seeds of the teachings in our mind that's why it's important to have a long life so praying for a long life and taking care of our health and so on that's very important to do if you're a dharma practitioner who sincerely wants to live long and and be healthy in order to practice but otherwise if we don't really intend to practice then it's kind of useless to you know to pray to pray for that and to have this we're wasting the great opportunity that we have right now okay now the next verses they're worded in such a way i want to actually put the second clause in each line first because to me it makes more sense i'll i'll read it as it is and then i'll read it the other way so as it is it says 
490. Therefore, be devoted to the Dharma just as you are devoted to yourself. Be devoted to the correct practice just as you are devoted to the Dharma. Be devoted to wisdom just as you are devoted to correct practice. Be devoted to the wise just as you are devoted to the to wisdom. I find the sequence for me to be clearer if I say, just as you are devoted to yourself, therefore be devoted to the Dharma. Okay? Just as you are devoted to the Dharma, be devoted to the correct practice. Yeah? So the reason I I find it better, it's like, you start with just as you are devoted to correct practice, then what do you need to do next? Be devoted to wisdom. And then just as you are devoted to wisdom, be devoted to the wise. That, that way of wording it, is for me, is much better. Yeah? Because I, I played with, I, I was reading this and I always somehow got stuck. Because it's very clear there's a secret sequence here. Yeah? So you start out with the Dharma. You start out with yourself. And you go to the Dharma. Then you go to sincere practice. Then you go to wisdom. Then you go to the wise. Okay? Yeah. So first we must cherish the practice of the Dharma just like we cherish our body and life. Okay. Um, So in other words, if we cherish ourselves, we should be devoted to the Dharma because the Dharma brings us the happiness that we seek. So if we really want happiness, we should practice the Dharma. Uh Oh, you know what? I didn't finish 489. Yeah. Okay. Press the pause button here. Let's go back to 489. Yeah. So, because 489 says, those who consider the Dharma to be beloved are truly holding themselves as beloved. That's what this first line here is saying. If you really love yourself, then love the Dharma, because the Dharma is what gives you the happiness that you want. Yeah? So those who consider the Dharma to be beloved, that's the most excellent way to hold yourself as beloved. Or, to put it in the other way, if you hold yourself as dear, then hold the Dharma as dear. Then the last two lines, for if one wants to benefit those whom one loves... One can do so by means of the Dharma. Okay? In other words, yeah, we all have people that we love that we want to benefit. How do we usually think to benefit them? I'll send them some money. I'll send them a gift. Maybe I'll try and control them a little bit. I'll take them on a holiday, let them relax, take them out to dinner. How do we usually think to benefit others? Yeah. What did you say? Yeah, mow the lawn. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
you know, put them through school. Yeah, mow the lawn is really self-sacrificing, you know. Um, you know, but how do we think to benefit others? It's always something through this life, isn't it? That may or may not benefit them. We really don't know the ultimate long-term outcome. Yeah? But he's saying, for if one wants to ben- benefit those whom one loves, one can do so by means of the Dharma. So what do you think he means? That you go around and teach everybody the Dharma? Yeah? Okay, spouse, you just came home from work. I don't care that you're exhausted. Sit down. It's time for teachings. (laughs) Yeah? Offer me a mandala, and here we go. (laughs) Yeah? How's that going to work in your marriage? (laughs) That's not going to work, okay? Yeah? So what could he possibly mean here? I think it means to put the um, Dharma into practice, that we need to practice the teachings mm-hmm. to fit whatever circumstances coming up. Mm-hmm. So using some skillful means and, um, you know, evaluate what's going to be uh, beneficial for those around us. Mm-hmm. So to okay. do it that way. Okay, so what, one meaning of it could be if we practice the Dharma ourselves then just in our daily life interactions with the people we care, we are more even-tempered, we're more magnanimous, we're more benevolent, less conflict, we can benefit them that way. I think it also means that by practicing now, when we meet those people in future lives, yeah, we'll really be able to benefit them. Or maybe when they die, yeah, even if they're not Buddhist, if we can help them when they die in one way or another, yeah, plant the seeds in their minds. Like Annie the dog, yeah, you plant the seeds of the Dharma in the dog's mind this lifetime, then in future lifetimes, maybe you can teach Annie the human being yeah, the the Dharma. Okay? So really doing that. So it's very interesting that some, we find many people do not understand this. And then when they say, I want to benefit the people I love, they do it by giving up the Dharma to stay with the people they love and take them out on Sunday nights for hot hot food Sundays and take them on cruises and things like that. Yeah? But here he's saying if you really care about somebody, the best way to do it is through the Dharma. And that may not be the thing that, uh, you know, changes their life instantaneously now. But in the long-term view, it might be the thing, you know, by having that connection now, practicing well yourself, you can benefit them more this life and when they die, and then, of course, in future lives as well, when we meet them. 
when we practice the Dharma, also we um, we give others good examples. We don't have to verbally teach people. Mm. A lot of times, like when we've learned like generosity, a lot of it has probably been impressions of seeing generosity mm. and how we would how we reacted to that. Yeah, very good point. That if we just practice the Dharma, our life becomes an example without us having to try and do anything special that illustrates to other people how to live a happy life. And then I think that's very true, especially as kids. If we see the generosity of our parents, that makes a very strong imprint on us. Or if we see our parents maintaining ethical conduct, sets a very good example for us. This also reminds me, if you don't, mind me bringing this up, about having patience for the people in this life and seeing how you held so strongly to your practice. And over the course of time, your dad came here and was with these Buddhas and met the Dalai Lama. Mm. And who in the world would have thought that 40 years ago? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true. What this first kind of makes me think of is that by my practicing the Dharma, um, I allow kindness to happen. There's a chance for it. Mm -hmm. And without the Dharma, you know, um, acting in a reactive, self-cherishing way just creates the causes for all kinds of conflict. But at least, this is the control thing again, I can control myself and have the opportunity to create something more and more beneficial. Yeah. If we can manage our own mind, then we influence others by our example or by our words, but we don't have an investment about them doing what we say have to think that our teachers have done this for us in the past is that they modeled for us when we knew nothing else but to just maybe watch Mm. and so by understanding that we have created the causes to have this extraordinary opportunity due to somebody else's kindness who didn't abandon us who didn't give up who modeled for us who stayed with us when we were totally in the dark about everything Mm-hmm. So, as a result, it's sort of that paying it forward kind of thought. Yeah, very much. 